The Behemoth Brewing Company presents the Department of Conversation with Pat Brittenden. Behemoth, give me something hoppy. Well, kia ora koutou Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation brought to you by Behemoth Brewery. Behemoth Brewery is the feature sponsor of the show and uh, over the past seven years Behemoth has made 240 beers, more than that in fact many of those have been small batch one-offs if you want to find out more about them and one of the ways you can support us is to support them is what you just head to behemothbrewing.co.nz Well, if you haven't heard so far, um, something to let you know about if you've followed us on our Facebook page or my personal Instagram or Facebook page, you'll, you'll know this already, is that New Zealand's largest news website, stuff.co.nz, and the Department of Conversation have partnered up and um, Stuff is going to be carrying our video podcasts, uh, which is very, very exciting. It's exciting because you know Stuff is unquestionably the market leader when it comes to news and content in New Zealand. They have a million visits a day, give or take. I think it was 85 million over three months uh, to their site. And uh, the exciting thing for us here at the Department of Conversation is hopefully that broadens our content out to more people, which in turn will give us a chance to do more things, which in turn will give us a chance to continue to do what we're doing. So very exciting. Uh, We're in the process of just uploading our channel to stuff. Uh, that should, maybe that'll be through by the time you hear this, I'm not sure. But if not, head to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash D-O-C-N-Z, or if you're one of our lovely American friends, D-O-C-N-Z. And uh, if, if we're up and running on stuff by now, it'll be up there. You'll be able to find information about it and links to it, I'm sure, as well, if you want to see the video content. I myself am an audio podcast listener, like um, there are several podcasts that I listen to uh, and I don't really watch because I like to do things whilst I'm listening. You obviously are an audio podcast uh, user because you're listening to this right now, but sometimes we do have things like in the podcast coming up, we're talking to Dr. Ian Griffin, who is the director of the Otago Museum, but also an astronomer. Uh, He has taken some pretty amazing video footage of the Southern Lights and we show that in this video. Uh, when I am listening to something, just as a little heads up, and I hear something I want to see, I just kind of take a check of the time code, and then I can go to the video, which you can find on Stuff or on our channels, which are the uh, Facebook page or the YouTube channel, and you can uh, basically scroll through and find where it's at. And there are some amazing things to see in this podcast as we talk to Dr. Ian Griffith. Griffin. He is an astronomer. Uh, he is a discoverer of minor planets and a public spokesperson uh, for matters all matters scientific. In 2015, Griffin was awarded the New Zealand Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize for his work at Otago Museum. Uh, he's done a bunch of other stuff, including he was the CEO of Science Oxford, and he worked for NASA. To all my fat, flat Earth friends out there, and fat Earth friends, um, this guy will be obviously on your radar because he officially has worked for NASA. <laughs> uh, it was a great amount of fun. I discovered... Uh, obviously in Dunedin here, um, he has a known quantity because he's the director of one of our sort of um, institutions. Um, but I noticed him on um, Asteroid Day <laughs> last week because he was doing a speech at the museum, a, a presentation at the museum. We talk a bit about that in the podcast. His name is Dr. Ian Griffin. Um, he was amazing. It was a really good chat. Enjoy. Thank you for joining us from Otago Museum. I always get these confused. Otago Museum, 
Museum of Otago. It's Otago Museum. Uh, we're the Otago Museum. Yeah. I do it with the university. I'm like, Otago University, University of Otago, what's the correct dalliance? Yeah, the name, the, the order of the names is, is very important to some people. But um, but I think everybody in Dunedin knows where um, Otago Museum is. The Otago Museum is spectacular. I probably go there uh, by myself, once I by myself, without children. That typically is with adults. But, but when you say by yourself, or with the kids, I don't know, once a quarter? Uh, or if there's an event on, maybe more sometimes. It's a really impressive. I grew up going to the uh, the Auckland Museum of the Domain, so that's that. So that was sort of my background of museums. You know, I kind of remember. And then you have kids, and you take them to the museum that you went to, and you learn it all over again. Especially in the last kind of twenty years, I guess there's been a um, a change somewhat in how you educate and communicate children in a museum. The different from when I was a kid, it was a bit more. Uh, sterile is, yeah. that, is that a fair yeah. word yeah and now it's very much more interactive and fun and so it's interesting kind of rediscovering museum life as an adult firstly through the eyes of kids and then kind of going well this is pretty good i'm going to just keep coming myself anyway yeah i mean i i work in museums not because i've got an innate history interest or expertise um the reason i work in museums is because i see them as as engines for social development and i know that sounds a bit crazy but um in my own case um my mum and dad were working class people. We lived in South London. And um, back in about 1969, Star Trek came out on TV. <laughs> and all of a sudden, these two um, working class parents who, you know, basically both of them have left school at 14, had sort of a five-year-old kid who's going, oh, I want to learn all about science. Live so, long and prosper. Absolutely. So they took me to the Science Museum, which back in those days, I remember it really well because um, we didn't have much money. And we went back to the Science Museum. or we went to the Science Museum on a Sunday morning because parking was free in London on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and we went in and that visit, I think, changed my life because um, back in those days, the, the ground floor of the Science Museum was interactive. They had these, um, the, these, basically, they were machines with cranks that you turned and they did wonderful things. So I went home and, you know, from that point forward, I started really getting interested in science and maths and ended up being the first person in my family going to university. Um, and to my mind, that journey was kick-started by a visit to a museum. So I, I don't really see museums just as places to have old stuff in cases. They're more places to inspire, um, especially young people, but hopefully everybody who crosses the threshold. And um, certainly the mo the main reason I work in museums is because of those opportunities to kind of get youngsters excited. So you say social development, you mean literally you have uh, like changed your societal, from what your family had, what they would have been, you know, who they would have been on some levels, you know, what they would have experienced as the norm to a completely different person and who you are. And probably, I'm not sure if you've got kids, but if you've got kids, what your kids experience because of that as well yeah and I, I was very lucky because even though my parents didn't have a, an education they knew the value of education right and we had loads of books in the house and um you know we were almost forced to go to the library every week but that was, <laughs> it was great um and to my mind um obviously you know one of the reasons I, I ended up going to university was i had good teachers but you, we all need that spark and actually there's research on this. Um, Nancy Longnecker, a researcher at the University of Otago Science Communication Department, did a, a really interesting paper about what influences career choices in young people. And, of course, parents are important, and, of course, teachers are important. But surprisingly high are museums and science centres and art galleries. Mm. And if you ask many people, and actually they've done this with a few astronauts, you know, what started your excitement? And they will say, oh, we visited a planetarium when we were young. And I know a number of artists, you know, were inspired by visits to, to art galleries. So... I think very often people, especially hard-nosed financial people, will look at museums and art galleries and see them as luxuries. 
I, I very much disagree with that. I do think, you know, we are engines for, e well, social development, but also economic development. I mean, um, I've been doing a lot of research about um, the impact that the Otago Museum has on the economy of Dunedin. And we commissioned a study last year because I, I had a suspicion that we were quite impactful. Meaning adding to the the, the financial benefits Absolutely, to the yeah. community. Generating income for the yeah, community. Yeah, right. and, and I know almost certainly in some museum circles, talking about money is a dirty talk. It's, just, it's a, a discussion that can you know say, well, it's not about money, it's about art. Well, to be honest, for sustainability reasons, it is about money. And we need to make sure the museums are sustainable. And um, our study showed that for every dollar of public money our museum gets, we, we generate about $5.70. Um, we have wow. a $28 million impact on the economy, and that's through employing jobs and secondary employment because we employ people. We employ very skilled people at the museum. Mm. Um, and to my mind, that's often forgotten. When you look at the museum and you say, oh, my God, the museum costs this many millions of dollars a year, that, why do we spend that money? Well, actually, we attract tourists. We employ skilled people. We inspire young people who hopefully will go on and become, you know, the scientists, the engineers, the artists of the future. And to my mind, and again, I'm probably going off way off topic here, but I think that the future economy of New Zealand is all about high tech. It's not necessarily around primary industries. Um, you know, if you look at how much it costs, you know, a kilogram of milk powder going to China generates a certain amount of income for the country. Uh -huh. But a kilogram of high tech you know, designed stuff is going to generate, you know, thousands of times more per kilogram. So investing in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, education is really important. But also getting kids excited about that is important. And I think that's part of the role that a museum plays. And of course, you know, I'm not going to um, detract from the really important cultural role the museum tells. We tell the story of our country, the sure. story of the history of our cult country. And actually, in the Otago Museums, uh, and one of the reasons when I first came here, I thought, oh my gosh, this place really is amazing. I remember I came here to be interviewed for the role. And I was, I've always been interested in living in South Island, New Zealand, because my background is in astronomy and we have great skies here. But when I came through, and I remember going into the um, Pacific Cultures Gallery, mm -hmm. wandering around, and if you come to our museum, we've got this fabulous um, Pacific collection. Um, and I was wandering around, and there was, there was a, a display on Pitcairn Island. And in the display... They had the Pintle and Gudgeon of HMS Bounty. Now, the Pintle and Gudgeon are the bits off the rudder. And I thought, my God, why is this museum in the, you know, at, at the time I thought, the edge of the world, mm. why has it got the Pintle and Gudgeon of HMS Bounty? And it turns out there's a really interesting story behind that, which I can get into later if you're interested. But our museum, because of Dunedin's wealth, particularly in the 1930s, but probably a little bit before that, we've got this astounding collection, not just of New Zealand cultural material, but material from around the world. I mean, you've probably seen in the People of World Gallery, we've got a mummy. Yeah. Um, but we've also got an incredibly rich collection coming from pretty much every continent. And if you go on a behind-the-scenes tour, particularly into our humanities store, you'll see stuff from Africa, from Asia. We've got stuff from North America, South America, Antarctica. We've got penguin skins from some of the early heroic expeditions. So we've got about a million and a half objects in our collection that tell the story, not just of New Zealand, but of the world. And we can, if we get it right, and there's a lot of work to do that, we can potentially tell the New Zealand story in the context of world culture. You know, what was going on in New Zealand? What was going on elsewhere in the world? How are the two linked? How do we compare and contrast? And I think in an era when New Zealand's becoming, well, we're certainly a bicultural nation, but when we're becoming multicultural, being able to tell stories and the folks who come across the threshold seeing stuff from maybe their cultures, I think that's a great way of engaging with a broad, broad public. Uh, so... 
Yeah, so we're meandering around all over the place here, but you know, the reason I work in the Otago Museum is because it's a really interesting place, and we do lots of really stuff in different directions. You know, we've built um, certainly my eight years as director, we've built um, uh, an experiment that flew on the NASA Sophia Observatory. Now, what museum has been able to do that? Yeah, wow. Um, we've done the MoMA footprint project, yeah, you know, which was extraordinary, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, you know. Getting a, a call from a farmer saying, "I found Mama footprints." One of our young yeah, curators uh, went out. I mean, I can probably find out. the article. People don't people don't know that story. It was like in a stream somewhere, not far outside of Dunedin. Farmer came across like a freshly preserved moa footprint in a stream on his property. It's like, and it looks like it was left there yesterday. That's right. And that was amazing. It was an extraordinary story, and and it was made even the more extraordinary because um, we put um, a young natural science curator, Kane Fleury, in charge of that. He was about, he was in his late 20s, I think. And essentially, you know, his instruction was go and get those moa footprints. And um, the footprints were under a really quite a big river. And we had to build a dam. We had to divert the river. We had to pump it out um, we can have a look and recover these footprints. The, uh, and this is just extraordinary. And, and, you know, that's a picture Kane took uh, with his GoPro when he went up there <laughs> and with a farmer and he jumped in and uh, took it. And, um, it was amazing. It was an extraordinary thing. And, and actually, um, the complexities of getting stuff out of rivers in this country should not be underestimated because there's all sorts of rules and regulations about doing it. And we only had three days to do this big recovery ex- expedition. So um, I was very privileged to be there on the afternoon when the Mar footprints appeared, when the, the, the stream went down. Uh, Kaisiaki blessed the, the prints for the first time. They're, you know, they're about a million years old, these prints. Uh, and then working with the geology department from the university to dig them up. I mean, my word, it was just one of those things. I mean, it's not quite a Tutankhamun moment, but <laughs> but it felt really special. And, and the hairs on the back of my neck were just like, oh, my gosh. And one of the things about working at the museum is, um, you know, that whole thing in your job description, which is other duties as expected. Um, on the day we were at uh, Kyburn, which is where the, the footprints were dug up. Right. And um, we realised we didn't actually have a photographer, so I ended up taking the majority of the photographs during the course of the day for the, for the museum records. Um, so, yeah, I mean, working at the museum is, is really interesting. Um, we've got a really talented team. Um, because we're a relatively small museum, we tend to get youngsters out of university, um, so they're all keen and enthusiastic. Well, that's another thing that's really interesting, I think, about, about Dunedin uh, Target Museum is... It's literally a stone's throw. It's on the other side of the road from the university. And you've already talked about the geology department at the university. You must interact with them all the time. They must come to you guys for lunch all the time. You've got a cafe and just hang out. Absolutely. And and we've got links with so many departments. I mean, our new curator, Maori, Gerard de Regan, is in the archaeology department as an honorary researcher. I'm an honorary researcher in physics. Um, Lisa Matisu-Smith, a brilliant anthropologist, uh, is, is just joined the board. And one of the really cool things about uh, not just, you know... The, the the University of Otago but actually living in Dunedin is you meet people on the streets all the time and um, you know you have conversations so uh, Glenn Summerhays is a fantastic um, archaeologist who works in Papua New Guinea and I'm always bumping into him and he's always got a really interesting story about what he's just done or something interesting he's just found um, and that to me one of the huge benefits of working at the Otago Museum is this co-location almost with the university. Yeah. And there is this cross-pollination of ideas. Yeah. Researchers are coming in to use our collections to do amazing research. Uh, we get great lecturers coming through. Um, but also the museum assists them. So we, we're partners with a number of university departments on outreach projects. For example, um, the museum has got a contract from something called the Dodd Walls um, Centre for Research Excellence, which does research into photonics and quantum optics. 
we do their outreach, which means we go out into schools and explain not quantum optics to five-year-olds because that wouldn't be <laughs> sensible, but, but we try and explain physics to youngsters. Yeah. And that's brilliant because obviously the museum gets some funding for that, which yep. helps us. Sure. And we've got a team, and I think I'm, I'm rather proud of this, we've assembled what we think is the largest professional team of science communicators in the country uh, working at the museum, and they go across the country taking um, experiments, activities, uh, with a direct... Um, responsibility, if you will, of inspiring young people to take an interest. I am. Um, I'm. I've always kind of. I've been in Dunedin for seven or eight years now, living. Um, I've came to quite a quick realization that Dunedin, in general, is over-resourced. Um, meaning, uh, we have more resources in this little 130, 140,000 people city than most cities much bigger than. And I attribute that directly to the university. You know, the university drives a billion dollars a year into the economy. Students want certain things, resources, so we're over-resourced. It kind of sounds like you're saying that's a bit the same as this little museum that we've got at the bottom of the country as well, because how you're describing it, it sounds like it's, you know, got all the things, if not more than some of the bigger, better resourced uh, museums have. Is, would that be, is that fair to say that? And I don't, and it's not patronizing to say we're over resourced, like, but it's like, a, it feels like we're kind of, I hate that thing punching above our weight. It's such a wanky thing to say, but you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think um, the way I would put it is that um, for, a, for a city with such a small population, we are blessed with an enormously rich set of cultural assets. And I mean, I include in that toy too. We've got the art gallery, mm. we've got Olverston. And the challenge, and uh, it is a challenge when we talk about finances, I, I mean, it's really weird. Everybody thinks a museum director sits in his office and has dinosaurs coming to scare him, but most of the things that scare me are finances. Yeah, sure. And um, the challenge for places like our museum is that despite this incredibly, you know, a rich collection, um, the funding we have to kind of look after it is, you know, really out of kilter with the scale of the importance of the collection. So one of the, the issues that I'm dealing with at the moment is figuring out ways of persuading the government that actually you know while it's great that we've got a national museum in in wellington and it's a brilliant museum um the fact of the matter is that we've got some incredibly internationally important material in our collection Mm -hmm. that is funded by the ratepayers of dunedin so you know whatever it is 80 90 thousand people are funding a museum that's got a collection as rich as one that's funded by the entire population of New Zealand. And I, and I think... When you say it's as rich, are we, like, like even scale size? Because Tip Up is a lot bigger than the actual physical building. Yeah, the, the, the building is bigger, but in terms of um, scale, I think the biggest collection in the country is in Auckland. They've got about two million objects, maybe a few right. more, maybe a lot more. Uh, we've got about a million and a half objects. But, but, you know, amongst those objects, we've got, I think, two out of the three intact moa eggs. Right. right? Um, and things like that, I honestly believe, um, and I know I've got a, an axe to grind here, um, I honestly believe that, you know, the cultural assets of our country, whether they're in Wellington or Auckland if, or Dunedin or, or, or Christchurch or wherever, if they're sufficiently important, yeah. that they're of national significance, then I think there should be some contribution from everybody. A devil's advocate a little bit, because I don't, cause I don't yeah, disagree with yeah. you, right? But devil's advocate is in every art gallery in the country and every small museum in the country, wouldn't that apply so doesn't that therefore mean following that? And, and like I said, I, I, I don't disagree with the idea of centralised money coming to help you know museums and stuff. But wouldn't that actually be a nightmare? Because every then museum, large and small, art gallery, large and small, could well be needed to get some kind of funding from the government. Well, I think there are um, 
personally, I think, and also in the UK, they have a, something called a significance scheme, where if you do have something of national significance, you can get funding to look after it, whether you are right. big or small. Right, right. Um, but I think the scale of the, the challenge, um, particularly in the metropolitan museums like Auckland, um, Christchurch, Court Canterbury Museum, and, and here in Dunedin, is, is really way out of kilter. Um, and the, the number of significant objects and the, um, the facts, you know, that a lot of our collection is in a part of the museum that's not protected by sprinklers, for example. Oh, wow. I find that of incredible dis- you know, concern. And, and the challenge is that you know, it's relatively easy to go out and get funding for a capital project that's, you know, dare I say it, sexy um, and stadium. exciting. A, well, I, no, I'm not saying so. I'm, I'm not going to go there. That's, uh, I like the stadium. I've got no problem no, with the stadium. The stadium's great, and it's a fantastic asset for the city. Yep. But... Um, you know, it's really hard to get funding for sprinkler systems, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, you can get a new gallery, which is, you know, relatively straightforward to funding, although funding is always hard to, to get. So there is this funding challenge for institutions like ours. Um, so just to, to paint the picture, I mean, you know, yeah, from our vast audience who are watching us right now, um, there's some, you know, millionaire watching. What would a new sprinkler system cost? Uh, probably the best part of a million and a half bucks. Wow. Okay, so, so that's significant. And I also wanted to ask about the funding to be really clear. Te Papa get centralised funding. Yeah. Um, Auckland Museum? Uh, no, Auckland get ratepayer funding. So, their ratepayer base is obviously much bigger than Dunedin. Yeah, of course. So, but does that mean Te Papa is the only one that gets centralised funding? Yeah. All the other... Because, I mean... I don't know the Christchurch Museum Art Gallery as well, yep. but I'm assuming there is one similar. So none of the other ones get any centralised funding at all. No, that's right. I mean, we wow. uh, we occasionally get grants, yeah, right. um, uh, but but the challenge there is, as I say, um, we generate. Um, so for our institution, we get four million dollars of public money. We generate roughly the same amount. So through our commercial activities, so through our venues, our cafe, yep, right. Um, you know, you pay to visit our science centre, for example, um, and very often, right, you know. People come to local ratepayers come to us and say, "Well, why the hell we're ratepayers? Why do we have to pay to go to the science centre?" And I'm saying, "Well, the science centre offsets the running costs of the museum because we don't get enough money to run the museum." Um, so there are some real challenges, and, and I lose a lot of sleep over how we're going to, you know, keep the salaries coming in and that thing. You know, during COVID last year, we were lucky to get the wage subsidy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is running museums in this day and age is a complicated business well i mean not to belittle the museum it's it's not kind of like a library but they're not a money-making machine they're not it's not set up there to make profit is it i mean art galleries museums i mean it's a silly thing but even stadiums people complained about the stadium when it got built i was actually working as a talkback host at the time so i got a lot of that Mm. come across my telephone lines and the point that i always made was you don't you don't create these things to make profit, you create them to provide opportunities for the community. That, and, and if it's there to provide opportunities for the community. But it's, I guess a museum is more than that because, as you're saying, it's also protecting and looking after our stories as well. So it's not just an opportunity. I don't know. I mean, it seems like it would be quite, when I say easy, give easy answers. What about third, third, third? Third from the DCC, a third from what you generate, and a third from the government. No, that would be a $12 million budget. No, that would, and that would be perfect yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Um, to my mind, you know, the challenge that I've got is that um, – the, the, the team that look after our collection at the museum are incredibly talented people, um, but we've only got 14 of them. <laughs> so that's looking after a million and a half objects. Now, when I arrived at the wow. museum um, eight years ago, we had a team of about four or five. So we've expanded the team considerably. They ran the whole museum? But, well, that, no, they were the ones who looked after the collection. So gotcha. there's different areas of it. Gotcha. Um, and we've really invested in the collections team because it's critically important. It's a central part of what we do. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, you know, the collection team are expensive. They don't necessarily generate income and um 
the challenge for us is I want the team to expand. Yeah, you know, we, we've hired um, recently Curator Maori, which is terribly important because we've got a fantastic collection um, of Maori material. We want to hire a Pacifica curator because mm. we've got one of the world's best collections of Pacifica material. And I haven't even mentioned, I mean, um, about three years ago, we got a visit from a chap called Professor Wayne Horowitz, who's from Hebrew University in Israel. And he'd got wind of the fact that we have um, a, a wonderful collection of cuneiform tablets. These are the, these are basically um, the writing material of uh, three or four thousand years ago. Yeah. They're basically clay tablets upon which um, writing and um, material was put. Now, because in the 1930s um, there was a particular um, doctor associated with the university who was interested in um, that era. And he was also um, in the in the British Army, mm-hmm. um, and he visited uh, the part of the world where these things come from. Um, we've it turns out we've got the best collection in the Southern Hemisphere of cuneiform tablets. And this wow. chap from Isra- Israel came in, and he was blown away. And one of the tablets is incredibly rare because it was it turns out it was a, a student practicing their thirteen times table as you do, <laughs> and it turns out he'd made a mistake on this tablet. And then um, Wayne read it like you know you, I can read a book, and to see that was just fascinating and then to realize that we've got this treasure trove that we really didn't know the importance of it does show that there are lots of um, untold stories and there are so many secrets in our collections waiting to be liberated but to do that we need to invest in more staff to be able to do that kind of research wow. and that's that's the challenge you're doing god's work is that what they say doing god's work <laughs> well as an agnostic uh, I'm, I'm an agnostic <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm doing i'm doing work for the for society <laughs> hey um, i came across you a little i mean obviously you're known within the Dunedin community but i noticed last week you did a little uh, i i didn't get along to it in the end i really wanted to but the um oh, what's his name from die hard Bruce Willis, yeah, the Bruce Willis movie, uh, Deep Impact, Sudden Impact. Well, no, that, um, the Bruce Willis is Armageddon. Deep Impact oh. was the uh, it was the other one. They were, the, the two movies came out they within all, a few. They always do that, don't they? They bring them out at the same time. Yeah. Oh, so so uh, so, gotcha. So it was the other one. All right, but 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 Hollywood film on was it National International Asteroid Day, and you guys showed it in the planetarium. Yeah. And I read it. It was a very short little bio about you, and I thought, man, this dude sounds really interesting. And I thought, I just want to, I just want to have a chat to you about your life and what you've done and what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. But first of all, how did that event go? How did the big uh, the big screening of the big film on the planetarium walls go? Oh, it went brilliantly. Um, I mean, International Asteroid Day is really interesting in itself because it happens on June the 30th every year. And the reason it happens on June the 30th is because on June 30th, 1908, there was a massive explosion above Tunguska in Siberia. And that was... Um, an asteroid, mm. probably about twenty to thirty meters across, exploding above the um, the Siberian um, tundra, and it laid waste to quite a large area. And and because Siberia was, so it didn't actually hit; it actually no, exploded, no, it, it exploded on re-entry, on re-entry yeah. or something. And, and the fact of the matter is that there's not really a crater there, and nobody's ever found material from. The, the body and that's oh. because and conspiracy theorists go mad and they say it's a ufo and it wasn't um but the um the fact of the matter is the physics tell us that we think we know what kind of asteroid or rock it was and the rock the asteroid was moving so fast that the friction with the earth's atmosphere and the compression was such that it literally blew itself apart wow. and there was a huge explosion arguably the biggest explosion in um in recorded history uh through recorded history not history right? and um that uh, event was almost like a warning to Earth because um, 
the threat to Earth from rocks, asteroids in space is actually quite considerable. Mm. And is this the cheery part of the conversation? Well, it's, I mean, is this I, the fun part where we say we're all going to die? Is that what we're doing now? Well, this is why. I mean, and, and I guess maybe the thing you've you've read about me on Wikipedia is back in before I worked in museums, um, I was an astronomer. I have yeah. a PhD in astronomy, and um, an area of interest for me were these things called near Earth asteroids. And these are asteroids, um, and asteroids are basically icy, rocky bodies that tend. The most asteroids tend to orbit between the Mars and Jupiter in the solar system. But there are some asteroids um, which cross the Earth's orbit. And those ones are very interesting for two reasons. Firstly, because Earth gets close to them, we can study them. Mm. But secondly, there is the potential for them to hit the Earth. Now, 65 million years ago, um, an asteroid that was about 10 kilometers across hit the Earth above the, or hit the Yucatan Peninsula. And we think that that asteroid is responsible for the destruction or the death of all of the dinosaurs and a lot of the flora. start of the ice yeah. age yeah uh, well not really the start of the ice age but it it created something a bit akin to a nuclear winter right. huge amounts of dust was put up into the atmosphere and the earth the sunlight was filtered for a very long time uh, the crops died the 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 animals that depended on the crops died and there was a mass extinction and if that's what happens when a 10 kilometer asteroid hits the earth as someone who lives on this planet I really want to know how many 10-kilometer asteroids are out there and what is the chance of them hitting the Earth. Now, it turns out that um, there are some two to 3,000 of them that have been identified, and there are search programs around the world looking for them on every clear night. And a while uh, back in the late 90s, I was doing some work um, when I was um, in Florida. I ran a little search program for near-Earth asteroids. Now, I never found one, but I found a bunch of other asteroids um, as part of that work, which are mostly between Mars and Jupiter, and that's how I've got my own little family of 26 asteroids, um, which we can talk about if yeah, you want. Yeah, let's just have a look at this, and I'll bring up your Wikipedia page, because this is the thing, one of the interesting things that I talked about in the little bio, that you've discovered 25, either discovered or co-discovered, 25 minor planets. So you yourself, between uh, the dates here are from 98 through to 99, um, have found objects in the night sky, yeah. minor planets that no one knew about before. That's right, yeah, and and it's quite interesting. Um, the way the way you find it, how, you know, people often say, how do you find a minor planet? Well, first you need a telescope and you need a camera system. And um, you take a picture of the sky and then about 15 minutes later you take another picture of the same part of the sky and about 15 minutes later you take another picture. And then you line those pictures up and you blink them. You, you basically run through them very quickly. And what happens is the stars don't move because they're so far away. Right. But the asteroids are relatively close to us in celestial terms. They're actually quite a long way away, millions and millions of kilometers. Um, but the asteroids will move. So when you're hunting for a, a near-Earth asteroid, the, they tend to move very quickly, and you can pick them up. But after taking a number of images through telescopes, I started to see these moving asteroids, and then you send you measure the position of those asteroids relative to the stars and you send those measurements to something called the um, the Minor Planet Centre, which is part of the International Astronomical Union's uh, clearinghouse. And they will... They, they receive observations of, from observatories all over the world and they basically... They, they, they catalogue what's going on in space. And if you find something that's never been seen before, because they can figure out from its motion if it has been seen before, right? Um, they'll send you a note saying, well, that's, that's something new. Uh, keep observing it. And basically, if you observe it over the course of a few months, sometimes they can link it back to something that's seen before, but very often they can't. And then after about two or three years, this 
thing that you've discovered gets a number um, and that's an important thing because they basically that means they know where it is and they know where it's going to be for millions of years. So it's predictable and trackable. Entirely trackable right. and predictable. And in that moment, when the asteroid that you have discovered is numbered, you're, you're recorded by the International Astronomical Union as the, the discoverer of record. Yeah. And with that comes two things. Firstly, you know, it's quite cool to find a, yeah, you know, totally. something out in space. But you also get the privilege of suggesting a name for the thing that you have discovered. Such as... Uh Maria Griffin. Yep, that's right. You've got, I mean, um, Maria. Or Brevard, yeah. or Dunphy, or Skinner. Um, Hope Morangus, yes, that's my. Springsteen. Yes. Michael James. Yeah. Uh, Welty. Arthur Vingo, I like that one. All, all of the asteroids that I've discovered, I've named after people I respect, I care, or I love. Um, so 10924, Maria was named after my wife. Um, right. And um, Brevard was named after the, uh, the, the observatory where I work was in Brevard County in Florida. Mm hmm. Uh, Dumphy uh, was my father-in-law, uh, and Chris Skinner was the supervisor on my PhD. He sadly passed away. He died at a really young age. He was 36 years old, um, and uh, it was a big loss. Um, Hope Rangus is after my kids, Hope, Merope, and Angus. Oh, nice. Uh, they're, they're all furious they didn't get one each, but I thought that was uh, <laughs> indulgent. Mungakiki? Uh, Mungakiki was named after um, One Tree Hill yeah, in, yeah. in Auckland, and um, that's where the observatory, that, that asteroid was discovered from the Auckland Observatory in the middle of the city. I've looked through that telecom a few times. It's no, working. it's a fantastic, I mean, yeah. the Auckland Observatory is a wonderful place. If people haven't been there, they should really visit. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place, and um, a very interesting place to visit after dark as well, because the observatory there is, is very powerful. What about all the ones there up on the screen that still got 1998 YC? Well, not the power six, that's base six, I guess. Those ones that don't have proper names. Did you just kind of get over it? Oh, no, no, no. They're the ones, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to waste all my names all at once. And right. I've kept some back. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, a month or so ago, and it's not shown in this, uh, this, this Wikipedia is a bit slow. Um, but one of the asteroids that I discovered, which is um, a 101462, um, I named after someone called Tahu Potiki, um, who is a, a local man um, who was really influential in the design of our science centre at the uh, at the museum, Tahu really helped me understand the importance of a bicultural story. Yep. And um, one of the reasons the, the science centre is called Tuhura is that um, in discussion with Tahu, you know, he was really interested in inspiring young Maori kids to take an interest in science. And we were talking about, well, you know, why should the only Maori stuff in the museum be in Tangata Whenua Gallery? Why don't we, you know, percolate it out across the institution? And now, now that we have Matariki as a national holiday, they must all tie together quite nicely. Absolutely. Yeah, but, yeah. but but so Tahu said, no, look, I can, you know, we let's talk about this. And he, he gifted us this brilliant um, creation story that really underpins the really good science that's involved in the gallery. Cool. So I'm very proud of that. And that's, so does that mean you've got a bunch of ones that when you want, you, these are all available for you to name shortly. If you had a bunch of names that came up tomorrow, you could just contact your peeps and go, okay, so uh, 2001 OF to the base 32, we're now going to call that mm, yeah. whatever it is. That's right. And, but it's not as easy as just um, saying that's what I want. You have to put it forward. And the, the, the International Astronomical Union is a really interesting body. It's very august. And they have this, um, this body called the Working Group on Small Body Names. <laughs> Oh. And you propose your uh, your name to them, and they there's about ten of them on this uh, this panel, and they um, you know they they consider it. They probably rub their beards, and um, <laughs> and uh, eventually they'll say yeah or no. And and there are some rules about minor planet names as well, which have to be followed. So um, military yeah. people are not allowed. Um, okay. Politicians and uh, and animals are frowned upon. So um, frowned upon doesn't mean can't though. No, there is one. In fact, the asteroid called Mr. Spock isn't actually named after the character mm -hmm. Mr. Spock. It was named after the observatory cat. Oh, there you go. <laughs>
so it's quite fun to do this but um in a sense um you know it, it there are there are there are millions of these things out there so in a, in some ways naming them is a, is is like naming stones on a beach it reminds me a little bit like uh, i used to watch qi that program quite a lot um quite interesting with stephen fry and they would say you know they did the question about where would be the best thing to discover a new species of you know animal or insect and people were naming all these you know, places and the answer was in your backyard yeah. if you actually delve into your backyard and dig and look around you'll probably find something it sounds a bit like the space version of that is the same if you look you may well see something that's right and of course you know while the asteroids that i found are you know mostly small and mostly i've got to say pretty boring in in terms of their orbits they're not going to intersect with the earth um the fact of the matter is while i was doing that i was actually studying other earth crossing asteroids and improving their orbits and and this stuff is really important because thanks to the advances in technology we may well be able to discover an asteroid that's going to hit the earth long enough before that impact that we can do something about it meaning I mean, maybe not going quite so far as the Hollywood movies about climbing on board it and detonating nukes in it, but knocking it off course. Is that a, a, a actual? Because you've worked for NASA as well, yeah? yeah. So is that an actual possibility that if something that was say fifty kilometres across was heading our way to do something to knock it out of the way? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really unlikely that you know, you know, the, the whole Bruce Willis approach, like you know, going on a, landing and, on it, landing on nuking <laughs> it, probably is not the way to go because you'll if you blow it up, you'll create lots of other ones that will probably still hit you but actually some of the asteroids that you know the scientists are getting better and better at this and they can calculate where this thing's going to be in hundreds of years and what that means is let's say you find an asteroid that's two or three kilometers across which is big enough to pretty much not wipe out civilization but if it landed in the atlantic it would probably take out new york it would take out london it would take out paris it would be serious it would be a bad day for earth if one of these things hit the earth Mm -hmm. but if you get a hundred years warning of that happening you can potentially move the asteroid and you don't actually need nuclear bombs right if you get 100 years warning you could potentially drop white paint on the asteroid and the radiation from the sun the radiation pressure might slowly push it off course now you'd have to do the calculations and you might need to have other technologies like one one millionth of a degree to the left might be enough in 200 years to miss the planet exactly exactly right so it's not just about blowing things up Um, but this is blowing things up sounds so much especially in hollywood well that's right but but and again oftentimes I think I've got a theory that humans don't really get risk, right? Risk and humans, we don't understand it. So asteroid impact is one of those things which is, it's quite unlikely to happen. Mm. But if it happens, it's a bad day for Earth, right? right? And there was a really interesting, I gave a talk once and um, I spoke to some folks who do insurance calculations. And if you say that, you know, a one kilometer or two kilometer asteroid hitting the Earth, it wipes out New York, it wipes out Paris... The cost of that to Earth is trillions, mm. right? So if you're an insurance agent, how much would you invest to, you know, offset the risk of that? And they came up with a number that we should be spending something like 2 or $3 billion a year searching for asteroids because that would, you know, the investment there. As it happens, you know, there are not many asteroid search programs across the planet. We're probably spending less than $100 million. Right. So... People are probably laughing, saying, oh, well, you know, asteroid impact, it's not going to happen. But, you know, it could happen. Yeah. And we should, like, my view is that we should invest sensibly as a society. And it's one of those things where we should invest. Much it, like you should invest in museums, I think you should invest in <laughs> asteroid, deflect, <laughs> asteroid programs as well. Is it fair to assume, and it is an assumption, but maybe you can confirm, that that if there was something coming that was going to be significant, and it was with, like, 100 years, we'd know about it now? 
does that mean we've got a pretty clear skate for the next kind of 10 decades? In some ways, yeah. I think um, the last survey, the last numbers I saw, they, the, the surveys that have been going on for probably the last 20 or 30 years have probably found something like 70% of the bodies in the size range that might hurt the Earth. But that still leaves a big number to be found. And what that doesn't account for, unfortunately, is comets. Um, because comets don't just orbit um, in a particular part of the solar system. They can come from anywhere. Right. And in fact, there was a comet discovered a few weeks ago, which is probably the biggest comet ever discovered. It's 100 kilometers across, and Whoa. it's coming into the solar system for the first time ever. Uh, I think, or you know, it's millions of years uh, last time it was in the solar system. And this thing is 200 kilometers across. Now, as it happens, it's going to come no closer to the Earth than Saturn. Completely interrupting you. What would happen if it hit another planet in our solar system? Like if it crashed into Mars or something, would that impact us? No, but actually, um, 1994, there was a comet that impacted Jupiter. You may not remember this, but it was a comet called Schumacher-Levy 9. And it, was, it gave us a ringside seat on what happens when a comet hits a planet. Yeah. So Schumacher-Levy 9 was a reasonably small comet um, that split thanks to gravitational interactions, into a bunch of different smaller objects. And over the course of a few months, it impacted into Jupiter, in the atmosphere of Jupiter. And we saw these dark black spots appear in the gas clouds of Jupiter. So these are things that happen, right? And, and again, a lot of folks say in astronomy, it doesn't, what, do, you know, what does astronomy tell them about Earth? Well, actually, it tells you quite a lot. We can get into that if you want. But, um, but it does. It's a subject that can give us real insight into what might happen to the Earth. And um, I do feel that the the threat from space is actually underestimated. And, and actually, some of the things that are going on at the moment, um, and we can probably talk a little bit about Elon Musk's satellite constellation, mm. um, the new Starlink constellation that's being launched by Musk, uh, uh, you know, 60 satellites at a time, there's several thousand of them in orbit at the moment. Those constellations are making it more and more difficult for astronomers to track things like near-Earth asteroids because these bright satellites moving as well. are passing through the field of view. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and there's plans. I mean, I think Musk's got plans to have at least 13,000 of these things. Um, there's Amazon are going to do it. There's OneWeb. So, you know, over the next 10 years, there may well be tens of thousands of satellites in the sky, which it's it's facing, oh, sorry, it's creating real problems for Earth-bound astronomy. And it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm someone, I, I care about going out and looking at the night sky. And I care about, you know, the beautiful view of the sky we get from Dunedin. But in a sense, my love for the night sky, you know, people say well, that doesn't matter. The satellites are really important. They're providing the internet for the world. But if those same satellites are actually disrupting observations that might protect the Earth, my question is, who the hell is giving people permission to do this? You know, it's a, um, it's a problem. What's the problem? It's a problem of um, one nation is able to disrupt the night sky of the entire planet mm. without permission mm. is that right i mean, i don't i personally i personally think it's wrong well, it's not even one nation it's about elon musk it's like i've heard elon musk described by a couple of podcasters as when you get to this point of being so wealthy and eccentric that they let you burrow you know tunnels underneath uh, los angeles because he comes along and says i'm going to burrow tunnels underneath los angeles and los angeles says okay that's fine whereas it sounds like a, a lunatic but because he's got the money, they let him do it. It's not even a country necessarily. He's doing it. It's, it's an individual with his own company. Yeah, but there are regulations. I mean, I think the, 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 the United States, through the Federal Communications Commission, regulate um, actually the radio spectrum. They're not regulating um, the, you know, the view from, from the planet. 
Um, and, and whatever your views on Musk, um, and, you know, in some ways he's an innovator and doing really incredible things. But in other ways, you know, um, is, it, is it right that without debate, without um, dialogue, that an individual company can disrupt the planet? Um, maybe that's capitalism. Maybe that's the free market. All well and good. Um, but one of the reasons we've now got a massive problem with things like the greenhouse effect and the you know and the CO2 going to the atmosphere and climate change is because we let people do what the hell they like and burn things and do stuff. And we're now trying to, you know, after the fact, regulate it and you know, put the, the, um, the, the genie back into the, into the bottle, so to speak. Mm. Um, I, I don't know what's right and wrong, but certainly, you know, the night sky for me is something that is precious. It's talca. It's, it's something, especially here in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in London where, to be honest, you know, the Milky Way is hard to see. From Portobello, where I live here, I can go out even with streetlights and I can see the most amazing view of the night sky. That's something to treasure because I'm connecting with the universe, I think. And if we lose that, and, you know, Musk is making efforts to darken his satellites, etc. But if every night you go out and for a couple of hours after sunrise and sunset all you see is satellites, I'm not sure that as a planet that's what we should be aiming for. I recently was up in Naseby. Um, They have a dark Mm. sky policy. And we went up there for that reason. Uh, it was it was like well recently it was in the last twelve months it was after lockdown when we were, everyone was trying to get out and support local industry so we went up to Naseby and uh, yeah uh, amazing like went up there had our red torches so it didn't affect your eyes and spent sort of an hour and a half two hours in negative two degrees yeah. getting a tour of the night sky it was unbelievable no it is powerful I mean a few weeks ago I was blessed I we do some outreach with the University of Canterbury from the Mount John Observatory. And uh, for the lunar eclipse um, back in June, um, a team from the museum went up there to, to, to film the eclipse and webcast it. And when I came home, my wife saw the eclipse from, from Portobello. And Portobello is reasonably dark. But she said, you know what, you know, it was great. The moon went dark. But, but, you know, it wasn't as great as I was expecting. Now, up at Tekapo, where it is really dark, yeah. the thing that stunned me, and I've seen quite a few eclipses, um, the thing that absolutely stunned me is at the start of the eclipse, it's full moon. You can walk around, it's like daylight atop. Mm. Mount John and then during the sort of 20 minutes of totality when the moon was gone I couldn't see in front of my face it was so dark and I think for those people who live in towns and cities you often lose the the majesty of something like an eclipse because you've still got lights around and it's still not having that dramatic effect but that particular eclipse was just absolutely memorable for me, and uh, maybe it's I'm getting old and uh, you know enjoying more and more simple things. So that that's what the eclipse looked like from my deck. I took that photo off my deck, and so I'd never got to that kind of really dark, 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 dark like you're talking about. But it was still it was pretty spectacular yeah. from just above where we're sitting right now. But yeah, I imagine in a, on a on a like a world heritage night sky, it would have been. Um, even better. Yeah, no, and um, and actually talking about decks, one of the reasons um, um, I moved to Dunedin um, was because uh, July twenty second, twenty twenty eight, there's a total eclipse of the sun visible from my deck <laughs> in ah. Portobello. Well, not just my deck, the whole of the Otago Peninsula. Um, solar eclipses are amazing. That's when you get a daytime. Um, the moon covers the sun, and for a few so minutes it goes. So that's the down. sun, and then the moon between, and then the earth. Yep. So you get a shadow. Over yeah, that. that's absolutely right. And so an eclipse of the moon, like the one we can see here, that happens at full moon. So yeah. during that, the earth passes between the moon and the sun. For an eclipse of the sun, um, the moon passes between the earth and the sun and casts a shadow. So 4:15 in the afternoon, 22nd of January, 2028, 
I'm going to be on my deck. So that's seven years yeah, in the seven, planning. Seven ways away. And, and one of the... Um, um, well, this is kind of going off piste, so forgive me. But one of the, one of the things I never understood when I moved to Dunedin was um, everybody said, oh, you live in Mary Hill, live in Mary Hill, which is a kind of a... If yep. you don't know Dunedin, it's kind of a, a suburb quite close to the university. And I was exploring because I'm, I'm kind of someone who likes to dally around. And I drove down the Otago Peninsula and something didn't compute because as I drove down the Otago Peninsula, house prices decreased mm. and the views got better. Yeah, of course. And I just... I, so I ended up in Portobello. And, and, and to the Dunedin Nights, you know, the 20-minute drive was just, oh, that's just like you're on a foreign planet. You know, it's like so far away. Why would help? It's a, but, but to someone who came from England where I was commuting for an hour... I just thought this is the best place in the world. As long as you can keep it. I mean, some people, I'm, I'm the same because I moved here from Auckland in 2014 and I have not lost that Auckland traffic vibe. Yeah. Whereas other people come and they're like, oh, normally an hour. And after about six months, they're like, if it's more than 10 minutes, it's too far. If you can keep that perspective of this is not a long trip, then you're right. I mean, you go to Waitata, you go to Portobello, you go, you know, Hooper's Inlet, that kind of those areas. And it's not a long way ever. I hope I always keep that attitude because that does open up the kind of half hour to hour radius of the city being a really easy place to live yeah but also i mean you're absolutely right um it's easy sometimes to say oh god it's a bit of a drive but then you get the sunrises or the sunsets um and i'm i'm, I'm just i i'm late to meetings very i, I know people at the museum <laughs> don't schedule meetings um about an hour from sunrise or sunset Good. because um <laughs> the morning some, some mornings particularly if there's a, a relatively low cloud base with a gap near the horizon you get these incredible sunrises and sunsets on the Otago Peninsula. And they're just like, the sun, it, it, you know, it goes bonkers. And I'm often stopped and just take pictures with my phone because it's so beautiful. And um, as, as a, you know, I became a Kiwi citizen now, but as someone who, you know, lived in a part of the world that wasn't particularly beautiful um, for the last, before I came to Dunedin, I don't think I could ever lose the, the passion for this part of the world. Because um, the beauty of the Otago Peninsula in particular, I mean, mm-hmm. Dunedin's lovely, but the Otago Peninsula is like nowhere else on earth. It's yeah. just incredible. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, I can. I live in this house in sort of suburban area at the moment because I've got kids at school and that kind of stuff. But I think I might end up above Broad Bay or maybe up the peninsula. They're the two areas that I'm kind of drawn to 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 go and live once uh, once the kids are out of school. Yeah, and no, that sort of thing. They're, they're, and they're great places to, to bring up. I mean, even if you do have kids, great places to bring up kids. But uh, but no, and and the other thing I'm lucky about living on the peninsula, of course. Um, while I'm not an astronomer, I mean, I don't call myself an astronomer anymore. I'm a museum person, but. I get to indulge myself with um, the dark sky in places like Hooper's Inlet, which you referred to. Yep. And, um, Great place to see seals yeah. as well. Oh, fantastic. But, but, but also, um, and again, this was something I didn't really clock before I moved to Dunedin, that you get to see the southern lights quite a lot from this part of the world. And um, I've spent so many nights uh, well, actually on doing that. that let's, I mean, this is your YouTube channel, yeah? Yeah. You, this is your YouTube channel? Yep, that's right. And you have spent a little bit of time, let's bring this up for people who are watching, actually uh doing that which is a good one from from these are all from the out from a flight aren't they but is, is there a good one that's from uh, from hoopers if you go to the yeah. right i think um oh, there's some earlier the ones yeah there there we go there's uh, there's a few that one um sort of that one with the boat shed is quite good there we go uh, that one there that, yeah that's quite a nice one all right let's let's bring this up on the screen so people can, this is you filming doing oh there you go it's 2017 a film by ian griffin yeah i have pretensions to be a um 
Might just turn that down in case there's any strikes on the music. That's beautiful. I actually know where that is. Yeah, no, so I know exactly where that is. Sadly, that uh, boat shed was destroyed in a storm about three years ago, but um, it's owned by the Smith family, built in the 1920s. But the really cool thing about that, you've got Sandy Mountain in the background, which Chills fans will recognise from uh, the very early Chills videos. Yeah. Um, but here we've got the clouds going across, and if you can just see in the background, there's a little flickering aurora, which I think builds up in this one. But this boat shed, I've spent many a night watching, and um, the the light on the other side, um, that's a farmer who goes to sleep, I think, about 11 o'clock in the evening. I've, I've spent right. many a night there. There's a gentle aurora going here. This this was more of a gentle night, but you can see Green it builds, and, and you there start to get the purples. Yeah. And the southern lights are just incredible. Um, and so what time of day? The sun's about to come up? Oh, no. this uh, that On the right-hand side, that's Dunedin's light pollution. This was shot a few really? years ago before we switched over to LED lights. So this was quite, yeah. that was from Hooper's Inlet. So the aurora is around to the right. And then, as I say, that light you can see in the middle, that's a farmer who lives uh, lives on Hooper's Inlet. And um, I met him at a party, and uh, he was a bit perturbed when I said, you go to bed at 11.30 every night, <laughs> don't you? So, um, but the southern lights are something that are a real treasure in this part of the world. And, and again, when I moved to Dunedin eight years ago, I didn't really clock that. And I remember when I first moved here, I rented a house out in St. Clair. Mm-hmm. And when I first came here, I came here with my son because my wife, um, my two daughters were in the UK. The girls were just about to start university and Maria had to sell the house. So me and Gus, who was 15 at the time, were living the bachelor lifestyle out in St. Clair. And every Friday night, I'd come home from work. We had fish and chips or fush and chips on the beach. <laughs> and we were sitting there and I saw this green stuff. I was going, Gus, can you see that? And he, he goes, yeah, that's an aurora. And I said, yeah, it is. So I ran back and got my old camera at the time. It was... Um, probably a 10-year-old digital camera, and took my first picture of the aurora. The very next, e- we, next week, we were eating fish and chips on the beach again, and we saw another aurora. Yeah, cool. And I clocked that, oh my gosh, you can see this quite a lot. And um, since that time, I've been a bit of an aurora obsessive. And um, I've lived here eight years. I think I've seen it nearly 300 nights now. Wow. Um, so it's quite often, you know, you, and you don't see it every night. Sometimes you'll see it seven nights in a row. 30, 30 40 times a year. Yeah. Wow, yeah. um, 30 times a year. And you have to work, I mean, sometimes you have to work hard, sometimes it's not very bright, mm. uh, but sometimes it's gobsmackingly bright. I mean, there have been a few displays at full moon, for example, where the aurora has been visible. And there was the classic one in, um, we, we, we always, if it's a really big aurora, we always name it after a, a day close by, but there was the fantastic St. Patrick's Day aurora from 2015. Nice and green. Which was bonkersly bright. <laughs> and um, actually, I, was, I, was, I actually got a speeding ticket that night because it was cloudy on the peninsula and I was zooming down past Brighton and a policeman kind of pulled me over and he goes, what's, what's, the, what's the hurry? And I was going, there's an aurora. And he looked up and he sees the aurora and he still gave me a ticket. But, <laughs> um, but that night I was very lucky because um, I set up my camera wrongly. I, instead of, I had a fisheye lens and I put it at its widest angle. And I recorded something unusual, something called a Steve, which is a really weird form of aurora that was only recently discovered. And the data I took that night, the photographs, I took about 350 pictures through this fisheye lens. They're being used by a bunch of scientists um, to prove a really important physical process. Um, So even as an amateur, if you will, now, because I'm not a professional scientist anymore, you can take data that's really useful to professionals. Um, But I I actually photograph the aurora because it's so aesthetically beautiful. And um, I love seeing detail in the aurora and trying to record the colours. But frustratingly, and I mean, probably um, you saw a few pictures of the aurora taken from aeroplanes. Um, I got frustrated that um, I couldn't see the aurora in its full beauty because obviously people are familiar with seeing the aurora from the northern hemisphere. If you go to Iceland or you yep. go to um, northern Canada or north, northern North America, like Alaska, you get to see these auroras overhead. Now, there is a southern auroral zone that's where you can see exactly the same kind of auroras, but unfortunately, it's almost entirely. Um, around over the sea 
So the story behind these little aurora flights is back in 2000. Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, this, this yeah. is a picture taken from a flight that we chartered back in, um, in March. We chartered a, a Boeing 787 Dreamliner and took 300 and, three, oh, sorry, 275 people um, down directly beneath the southern auroral zone. And we spent the best part of seven hours flying beneath an amazing aurora. Yeah. Um, the story behind this was about five years ago now. I was invited to fly on a NASA observatory called SOFIA. This is a jumbo jet that comes to Christchurch in our winter to observe the Southern Hemisphere. And it's basically a jumbo jet that's got a garage door that opens on the back through which a 2.5-metre telescope peeps. Wow. So you can imagine this is an expensive observatory because doing that is is not cheap. Yeah. So this billion-dollar observatory comes down, and I blagged a flight on it. And on that flight, I they were doing science, but we flew through the Southern Zone, and I saw these auroras, and I came back. And thought, oh my god, that's really exciting. Wouldn't it be great if we could do an aurora flight? And this is another Dunedin story because yeah. I, I walked down to a place called Orbit Travel in Dunedin, knocked on the door, yeah, and said, "Can you hire me a jet <laughs> to get to the, the aurora?" And John the, John Harley, who ran the company, um, didn't just slam the door and say, "Go away, city city man." Why, why he said, "Why do you want to do this?" And I'd done a survey on Facebook. There's a there's an Aurora Spotters Facebook group, and I said, "Well, how much would you pay to go and get you know four or five hours under the Aurora?" And people came up with a number that was about a thousand bucks. And I had oh. three hundred people say they'd pay a thousand bucks. So I went up to John, and John went to Air New Zealand, and they said, mm, "We can you know." So it, it turned out that to hire a plane, you'd have to pay about two thousand bucks a ticket. So we we flew our first Aurora flight um, in 2017 out of Dunedin. We flew a 767, um, biggest plane ever to land in Dunedin. We flew for seven and a half hours, and we saw about five hours of aurora on wow. that flight. Um, we've done it several times since. So the aurora flights are a, a, are a thing. Um, we do carb, pay for carbon offsets because people say, oh, this is not very green. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that happened was um, during lockdown last year, we didn't run an aurora flight. But I was contacted by a woman who runs a travel company up in Auckland. And, and her company normally ran travel to South America. Her name's Rachel Williams of Viva Expeditions. They're a fantastic company. And she said, look, the company's hemorrhaging money. Um, we think these aurora flights are the perfect COVID flights because, you know, you co- you know, you're not going internationally, yep. but you go on a long flight. And, not landing in a different but, country. Yeah. But you're seeing something interesting. So she said, would I help out? And I, I'm, I don't get paid for them, but I get a, a, a seat on the flight, which is all I care about because I want to see the auroras. So I said, yeah. And um, she, good on her. She marked these flights and she sold out two flights on the, uh, the 20th, 21st of March. And you can see on this flight, we actually flew into the biggest auroral storm of the last couple of years. So it was like the sky was ablaze for the flight. And amazing. We, it just got some extraordinary views. And it's just like being in Iceland. Um, and people say, well, you know, why don't you just go to Iceland? Well, at the moment, you can't. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the other thing is to get to Iceland, you've got to take probably the best part of a week, if not two weeks out of your life to do it. When you get to Iceland, you're underneath the clouds. It might be cloudy for a week. Mm. The advantage of the aurora flights, and, and this isn't a pitch for them. This is just you know the thought that goes into them. You can pitch for them. Why no, wouldn't no, you pitch no. for them? Well, <laughs> uh, but the, the advantage of them is like you literally fly above the clouds. Um, you fly to the auroral zone, so there's you know a hundred percent chance of seeing an aurora. You know, unless the clouds are too high, which is really rare. Um, and you get you know ten hours, so you're there and back in time for breakfast. So uh, it really is kind of a a relatively convenient package to do but also you can do some science on the flights and we've got some really interesting data from the flights which i hope to be able to publish later uh, but it's become a thing and um rachel and her company have sold out this there and f- there's this thing called the russell mcferrin effect for a bunch of reasons um you tend to see auroras near the equinoxes uh, so that's why we run our flights in march and september so there's a couple more flights going in september and then a couple more flights going in uh, march of next year mm. 
And um, Rachel's very happy because her company is able to survive lockdown. I'm very happy because I get to see auroras. And the people who go on the flights get to see something and actually have, you know, get away from New Zealand for a little bit. Although I don't know why they want to do that because New Zealand's a fantastic <laughs> place. Now, um, your um, activities at the moment, as you say, not calling yourself a scientist, not wearing that hat, but more of a communicator and an educator around um, science. Would that be fair? Uh, you won the award, let me get this right, the New Zealand Prime Minister's Science Communication Prize. So about communicating science. I was thinking um, in this current climate we live in, like I, I tell a story about my, well, I don't know which one of my kids it was, but she was probably 10 at the time and saying, you know, um, did you learn to juggle? Because I'm a good juggler. Did you, did you learn to juggle on YouTube, Dad? Just not having that idea that when I was a teenager, YouTube didn't yeah. exist. Yeah. You know, that there was other ways to do things. I remember, I can still remember in my house, the Encyclopedia Britannica volume sitting in the in the family room and no internet, no nothing, if we wanted to know stuff, to the library or obviously the, the encyclopedias, which unfortunately within 12 months of printing are probably technically out of date. Um, I, I wonder from a communicative point of view when it comes to science, you know, things like YouTube, things like, you know, these things which have got everything on them in a heartbeat, is that something that you are needing to come to grips with and are utilising when you are communicating science in 2021 compared to, you know, 2001 or 1981? I think they're powerful weapons uh, to communicate, well, powerful weapons, powerful tools to communicate science, but they're also potentially huge problems with YouTube because the notion of what is actually... Is right. it because of the misinformation? Well, it's misinformation, and I think um, you've got to be able to filter the information that's that's correct and the information that's not right. And I think a massive challenge for our society is the spread of misinformation. And, and you know, to wit the COVID issues that we've got at the moment, there's yeah, yeah. an enormous number of people who are spreading, spreading complete nonsense about COVID. And, 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 you know, stepping back a little bit, if we, if we look at the value of science communication, I think people like Susie Wiles and Michael Baker... Um, during the COVID crisis demonstrated the value of proper, good quality science communication. Because I think a lot of the reason we got through the crisis was not only did the communicators do a good job of talking to the public, they did a really good job of advising, um, you know, the scientists did a great job of advising the policymakers and the politicians. And New Zealand is in its privileged position at the moment simply because we listen to the scientists. And, and obviously, you know, we're a small island at the edge of the world, and that makes things maybe slightly easier than for places like the UK. But still, you know, we made sensible, um, dare I say it, knowledge-based decisions based on good science. And what are we now, 18 months? No, sorry, it's 18 months? No, it's about 14 months after the start of the crisis. Yeah. crisis. Um, and we're, we're lucky, touch wood, that we don't have this in the community. Um, and I think more than anything, this has demonstrated the importance of science communication and having good scientists who can communicate. Um, and, and that's why I do feel the work that we do at the museum, it's on a completely different scale to the amazing stuff that's done by Susie and Michael. Um, it's really important that we have a team who can actually try and help communicate complicated issues to the public um, because we really don't want the anti-vaxxers out there yeah. to, to win this battle of, of knowledge. Um, and my my problem with YouTube is there's no filter on it. You know, there's not a rating system that says you can trust this information or you can't trust this information. Um, and it's entirely possible to build a completely false picture of the world mm -hmm. based on, you know, what you read on YouTube. And, and actually, I mean, this is it's really interesting because back in... I grew up in, in the UK 
and the news to me was watching the BBC and the BBC had reporters who had ethics and they had you know standards um, and you knew that they would probably present a balanced picture of the world mm-hmm. nowadays we live in a, a world where it's entirely to build up a picture that agrees with your own prejudices um, you know and I'm you know, I'm going to pick the Fox News channel sure. uh, you know and that's I'm not disrespecting right wingers or or anything I'm going to pick that yeah. but if you're a right winger and you only get your news from Fox News um, you get a picture of the world that may not necessarily be fully informed. Yeah, you, you still think that Trump won the election and it was stolen from him. Yeah, and, and, and that concerns me uh, because it's terribly important, I think, that as a society, whether whether we're right-wingers or left-wingers, we need a dialogue. Um, and, the, you know, it's not about polarising and division. It should be about unification, in my view. Um, and I like to think that, and again, I'm not going to say what my politics are, but I, I like to think that if I disagree with something about a political issue, we can agree to disagree at the end of it and then go off and have a beer. I don't really think... Um, well, so where's the line then? You talk about you don't want the anti-vaxxers to kind of win the debate. We can agree to disagree. What if someone... And I'm I'm actually vaccinated. I was yeah. able to get it. Um, so it's not me, but what if someone wants to disagree with that and wants to actually put out there that... They don't think it's the best path forward to get vaccinated. I mean, it's funny, this is the third podcast almost in a row. We had a conversation about platforming versus deplatforming people and do we put out views that are uh, questionable and challenge them or do we not put out those views at all, which is better for society? So if we if we want to have a dialogue about it, what if we're having a dialogue with someone who is saying something insane about... Yeah, you know, I talked to you before we started about I have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for the flat earthers. I love talking to them. Yeah. It's great. I find it fun. Um, but but it's all shit, you know. It's, it's complete bollocks, and and it's so easy to debunk. So it's not really dangerous. Anti-vaxxers could be dangerous. So what do you then actually? It's maybe it's about engagement. You want to have a conversation or a dialogue with people, but what do you then engage with, and what do you not allow to get into the public sphere? Yeah, and, and this is really difficult area. And again, I'm not fully qualified to comment on this stuff. But I will say, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's weird. Um, I'm I'm a I'm a justice of the peace at the moment, um, which is a, a role you do as a volunteer, and I'm, I'm I'm studying to try and become something called a judicial justice of the peace. And I grew up knowing nothing about the law, right? I had never read an act of parliament until I started this course, and I had never read the Bill of Rights Act. And I think if you haven't read the Bill of Rights Act as a citizen, you should, right? Because in that, and it comes, I will answer your question. It comes back to you know certain freedoms and. Um, the freedom of expression, the freedom to have an opinion, the freedom, you know, all, all of these things that in a free and open society we, we, we must have. So I personally don't think, and this is a personal view, hasten it's not the museum's view, it's my personal <laughs> view, um, I personally feel that um, it's not the state's duty to tell people what to think. Yeah, and I agree. I grew up, you know, I could go to the library, and in the library I went to in, in Bromley in the UK, there was a copy of Mein Kampf. Right, yeah. Right? Now, I'm not anybody who would um, agree in any way, shape, or form with the material in that book. But the fact is, reading the book can certainly help you form an opinion about, you know, the, the rights and wrongs of that particular um, piece of work. That's a terrible example to use, but I'll use it. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's terrible, because it's the exact kind of thing. I mean, we're getting the word Nazi bounced around left, right, and centre in society today. So, you know, that horrific book is is probably a perfect example. Do you have those abhorrent... I mean, like... We've got this um, hate speech legislation going mm. through at the moment, that sort of thing. I mean, the only reason we need freedoms of speech is for abhorrent speech. You don't need it for things we all agree with. So I think Mein Kampf is a perfectly good example. Do you have it available so you don't, you know, if we, what is it, if we forget history, we're doomed to repeat it? Yeah. You know, and, and but 
Um, there was a very good documentary by Paula Penfold on stuff.co.nz on Billy TK mm. sharing his anti-vaxxer views. And I believe exposing and putting that out there was incredibly powerful way of debunking what he was saying as opposed to going, we don't want to share these views, we don't want to, we don't want to platform him. But actually, quite unquote, platforming him, I think was one of the things that helped to take all his power yeah. away. And I think it's, I mean, it's very easy for me. I mean, again, I grew up, I'm, you know, I've got white privilege and I recognise that. Um, but I think lived experience is terribly important and having having a society where we can listen to other people's views no matter how abhorrent they may well be is something I think that shines light on the abhorrence rather than hides it away and lets it fester and um, yeah this this whole area is getting quite troubling and I think this is possibly one of the downsides of of you know the age we live in with social media it's terribly easy on social media for folks to say someone said something and therefore they should be deplatformed and you know. The, the thing about lived experience, and I agree with you when we're talking about people whose experiences are valid, and I can't understand what person X has been through because I haven't walked a mile on their shoes. But my only concern with lived experience is it's often used as thus, therefore, it is complete evidence. Whereas I think that lived experience is, if anything, anecdotal evidence because it's that person's experience. Yeah. And we do hear a lot about people talking about you know denying my lived experience. But no, because you can have a lived experience. And that can still be anecdotal. That's just you. That doesn't yeah. mean it's representative of the whole group. So this is what we're going through at the moment with conversations. It's, it sort of dovetails a little bit into a conversation I wanted to ask you, uh, which is completely off task for any of necessarily your expertise in, in science. So I don't want to go down that. But what do you do in science communication when areas of science disagree with one another? And one of the conversations that's happening at the moment, and I think it's based in maybe this hate speech law, is, for example, conversations around gender. I mean, biology and physiology would say one thing, whereas um, sociology and psychology would say another thing. All areas of science, in their own way, saying completely the opposite things at times. What do we do? And I'm a, you know, I'm a Neanderthalic layman. What does someone like me do when you've got these these academics and experts and people? of high regard and people far smarter than me saying the opposite things and referencing science when they're doing it. I think this is this is where the world gets complicated, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, sort yeah. of the you know, in an ideal world, you know, communicating something simple is is relatively simple most of the time. But actually, when things get complicated, and th this area here is really complicated, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? We don't need to go into a debate about no, no, that no. conversation. No, but but and, and there are those who say actually it's not complicated; it's quite straightforward. Based on, there there are different views on it. But I think we have an open and engaging debate, and we recognise that you know some people have one view, some people have another view. Let's have a public conversation about it. Let's you know do it in the museums. Let's do it wherever it is we have it. But let's not start you know. Um, not letting people say what they think because I, that 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 that's that's i love what you're saying and i love the and i agree with you but i just don't think that's the society we live in i think like i remember and i can i can reference this and stay a little bit away from the controversy because i was a talkback host in the first decade of this century on news talk zb and there was a little a lot of conversation around climate change you know and and global warming and i would contact groups like greenpeace and i'd say come on and debate this with us because we've got people who who think this is not the case. We want to hear all sides. And Greenpeace would say to me, and, and various other groups as well, we will not debate that. The science is settled. And if we debate it, we're giving weight to the opposition. Now, my response to Greenpeace was, it's really unfair because you've had the uh, opportunity to go through this to form your opinion. 
myself and a group of other people are still on the journey, if you cut the conversation off, how are we going to be able to get where you are? And I think what you're saying about, <laughs> we're not having a conversation around gender, we're not doing that, but some of these things that are open and honest dialogues in society, it's, it's very difficult because there is maybe both sides, but certainly a perspective of that that goes, we're not having this conversation. If we have it, X, Y, Z will happen. X, Y, Z harms will happen. So we're just not going to have it. So I, I, I agree with your sentiment, but I am concerned for the reality of how that would work or, or wouldn't work in society today. Yeah, and I think it's a valid concern. I mean, one of the things I would say, and then the challenge here is um, I do think in general, if you have a battle of ideas um, and you've got the facts behind you, and there's mm. a I mean, one of the problems with... Um, things like climate change is you'll get the folks who will nitpick and nitpick around the edges and yep. actually miss the bigger picture yep. right and I'm, I'm the opposite because I'm an, I'm an astronomer right we look at the really big picture so yeah, yeah, yeah. when I look at the planet Venus and I know there's a runaway greenhouse effect and it's 400 degrees on the surface I'm worried about the amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere now slightly different effect but similar point um, I guess the, the counterpoint to what you're saying there is that, I mean there's the famous episode I can't remember if it's the Daily Show or something or John Stewart um, where they they, they shared, said look you know here are there are three people out of a hundred you know three scientists out of a hundred have this view to get a balanced view you have 97 of you know i view. remember and, how, it, yeah. and, and 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 part of the challenge here is the nature of the beast right journalism you you present a balanced picture but what is balance if you know by far the majority of the evidence and the the, the majority of the science suggests that in fact you know human Climate change but then you come back thing. to this concern about lived experience. If someone's lived experiences in 2005, they listened to Newstalk ZB every day, and Leighton Smith was their god. And I like Leighton. He was a yardstick for talkback, but he certainly convinced a lot of people that climate change is not real. If that was their lived experience, they, because that was where they got their, they were, they were the equivalent of a Fox News viewer, then 97 to 3 doesn't matter because they don't get that information. Mm. And... and and coming back to the conversation we had before, for example, about other conversations going inside, it's not 97.3. It seems to be very much still, you know, biology and physiology is saying this, you know, so sociology and psychology are saying this, and it doesn't seem that there is this overwhelming consensus at the moment. And as I said, I'm being real clear, I don't want to talk about yeah. that as an issue, but from a science point of view, when you have these conflicting areas that seem from the outside, and I'm a... I'm a novice in this, I'm naive yeah. to it, to be carrying sort of equal weight, what do we do to figure it out? Well, I think um, there's there's evidence. I mean, I guess if, one of the things about working in a museum is you think about history, and you know with time views on certain subjects have evolved. Um, you know, our view on things like homosexuality mm. has changed significantly in my lifetime. Um, yeah. In the UK and elsewhere. And that's a good thing, right? The world's changing and we're all becoming more tolerant in, in some senses. And I think the, the, the hot debate we're having um, about the issues you refer to at the moment, I think once the debate matures and once we do come to a consensus, I think we'll all get on and move on and that's the end of it. I think you're right. And, um, I, and I think for a long time about that particular debate, which we're not talking about per se, my things have been, I don't feel like we've got the language to actually have that conversation yet. No. And until we agree as a society what the language is, we can't have it in any authentic way. But I would say also it's really important, um, and this is where, you know, I talked about Fox News earlier. I do think um, scientists should go on to Fox News and talk because even if they're disparaged, even if they're um, not listened to, um, 
getting a chance to engage with that audience that doesn't agree with them is really important. Yeah. And similarly on the other side, I mean, you talked about flat earthers. I'd, I'd happily sit on a stage with a flat earther and debate the um, the curvature of the earth. In fact, dude, let's do it. I've um, got. <laughs> I I saw. I, I did one. I did a podcast during lockdown with Mark Sargent, who's like the world's most famous flat earther. Um, I'll, we'll get you on. We'll get, we'll get both of you on. I'm 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 starting. I'm thinking about starting up a debate series as well. Like there's a little offshoot of this. Yeah. And um, I, well, maybe we do a flat earth one. I'll no, we'll, bring you back and no, we'll do a flat earth one. I'd have to. I'd really have to prep my stuff. <laughs> but, but but the challenge here is actually um, a little knowledge sometimes goes a long way. Yep. And and the fact of the matter is, and this isn't being patronised, a lot of people out there don't really know enough about the science uh, to really understand the issues that, that, are, that are concerning. And actually, you, you said something earlier, which um, I, I didn't respond to at the time, but sometimes in science, things change. Yeah. And that unsettles people. Yeah. You know, science isn't always about absolute truth or absolute proof, right? Well, that's often the difference between science and religion, isn't it? Like, like, you watch these debates all the time between the religious person and the science person, and the, the science person goes, yeah, we were wrong. We know better now, so we've changed our position. Whereas the religious person often goes, this is the truth from day one. It's always been the truth. It always will be the truth. Yeah, and, and, and okay, I can illustrate that because um, it's interesting. During my legal studies at the moment, there's a, a question about um, something. You, what are you sure about and what can you prove? Mm. Now, I'm sure that the sun's going to rise tomorrow, right? But actually, as an astronomer, I know that the sun has got a finite lifetime. At some point in the next five billion years, the sun won't rise because it's going to expand. And my lived experience tells me that I'm sure the sun's going to rise tomorrow, but but at some point in the future, it won't. One day someone will say that and they'll be yeah. wrong. And, and that's the thing about we're all sure because of our lived experience. Yeah. And actually, we've got to recognise in ourselves that actually being sure isn't necessarily always being right. You can yeah. be sure about something and yeah. be completely wrong, right? And simple things like, I'm sure I visited that shop last year. <laughs> you know, and, and actually... I'm sure anywhere I left my keys. That, exactly. Yeah. And, and the, my point being here is not, not to belittle that, but, um, you know, you can be absolutely convinced that you're right and be completely wrong. And we all need to recognise in that. And, and I think that's what's missing um, in, the, in this media age where people get really up on the fence saying, oh, I'm absolutely right about this. And actually they need to think about it, perhaps. What I hear you saying I love, because it echoes something I used to say, <laughs> because I'm arrogant. Um, I wrote a blog piece 15 years ago, 12 years ago, and it was called Intelligent Debate Versus Ideology. And the problem with the ideologue is they think they're always right. 100% of the time they always have the correct answer. And logic dictates that we all know that sometimes we're wrong. And is this the argument, whatever the argument is, that is the time that you might be wrong in the conversation? So, um, yeah. yeah. No. So that that was sort of something that I that I think is right. It's, it's the acknowledgement that we can be and we might be and we're not always right. And opening th and having things, I don't know, whatever the brain version of us with an open hand and just and being open to the idea. It's like there's no point going into a, a conversation with someone if like a conversation or a debate with someone if you are not open to be convinced of change because then it's just an argument what's the point yeah. in that and, and, and there are examples of this in the museum field at the moment i mean there's a really interesting uh, it, it's kind of an extreme example of this but um there's a big movement for repatriation of cultural material yep. to source communities and it's really important that we do this so that's personal view and the museum's view as well um, i can say that we, we can um so we get um, various ewe treaties treaty settlements going on and our museum's got material that was from Iwi, mm -hmm. and sometimes we've acquired it legitimately. Sometimes we, you know, back in the door, back in the mist of time, you know, stuff came into the museum in, in unusual ways. But we've got communities now saying, actually, we'd quite like our stuff back. And probably 20 years ago, a lot of museums would say, hell no. But now I think we're all realizing that, you know, 
if something has meaning to a particular community, it should probably go back. As long as they can prove that it came from there and, you know, there's legitimate reasons, etc. What about as long as they can... I mean, this this is going to sound a little bit boomerish and maybe a little bit con- colonising, but what about if they can prove they can take care of it as well? I mean, well, I mean I'm mean, i thinking about, for example, shrunken heads that have been repatriated from, from places overseas and brought back. You know, they need to be, I would assume, pretty carefully cared for to survive. Does that matter? Or is it like, well, it's their property, they can do what they want with it? Well, I think particularly when it comes to um, Kawiwi or human remains, it's yeah. really... You know, it's, it's absolutely the community's responsibility to um, to, to care for them in the way that they see fit. Right. Um, but so in know, other words, it's their business. Absolutely, yeah. and, and I think it's really important that we as museums recognise that and engage with the communities. Um, because actually, twofold, I mean, obviously returning material is one thing, but we learn so much from engaging with the communities, right? Um, I know in our Pacific Cultures Gallery we had a, a special day last year when we brought in folks from the local Pacific community. Mm-hmm. And we went on a walk around the gallery and we were learning from the lived experience of those folks who could say, well, that's something that, you know, in my mother's village um, they made in a particular way. And to be honest, if you, in our in our, our collections catalogued and normally it will say such and such a thing was either bought or donated on such and such a date and it comes from somewhere. But what we really want to know are the stories. So getting back, for example, to the Pintle and Gudgeon. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah, is that, that, going back? that was about an hour ago, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, about a year after I became director, we had to visit from the then British High Commissioner who came around. And I said, oh, you've got to see this, because the British High Commissioner is also in charge of Pitcairn Island. Right, right, there, so. right. So I said, oh, look, Pindle and Gudgeon from HS Bounty. And she goes, why the hell have you got that? And I said, you know what? I don't know. So I did a bit of research, and it's a really interesting story. It turns out, we all know that uh, HMS Bounty sunk off Pitcairn Island. The, 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 the story is there was a mutiny on the bounty. Yep. The mutineers went to Pitcairn and lived, and they're... Uh, there. A lot of their descendants are still there to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, the mayor of Pitcairn, uh, Parking Christian in the 1930s, um, basically drove the boat, which is really important. And there was a big storm, and he went out, and the wreck of the bounty was um, was uncovered. So he dived down and brought the rudder of HMS Bounty to the surface, and it was wow. in his garden. Wow. Right. And um, in the 1930s, his son was studying at Seventh-day Adventist College, college in, in Auckland, and I found out this by going through the museum's records, by the way. Um, not being a historian, the story's a little bit hand-wavy. Um, so it turns out that his son, being a student in the 1937 Adventist College, ran out of money. So his dad wrote to all of the museums in New Zealand. He wrote to the Dominion Museum in Wellington. He wrote to the Auckland Museum. And he said, um, I've got this bit of HMS Bounty. Would you be interested in purchasing it? Wow. And of all of the museum, and I've got all the letters from all of the museum directors at the time, Canterbury, Auckland, Dominion, and um, Dunedin, and the Otago Museum. H.D. Skinner, the director of the museum, who's one of my favourite museum directors that we've ever had, um, wrote back and said, absolutely would like it. So he paid for the princely sum of £20, purchased... What a, was that worth, do you think? Um, like, I think... the reference point? Um, in this day, well, £20 back then was quite a lot of money, but yeah. these days it's, you know, it's several thousand dollars. Okay. But... He then gets a letter from Parking Christian saying, oh, and by the way, um, I've got this moai, which is a stone figure, like those those ones that you see on Easter Island. Um, would you like to buy it? So if you go into our um, uh, Pacific Cultures Gallery, you'll see this brilliant moai, which is the one of only two known to have come from Pitcairn Island. Wow. So... Um, that's the way museum directors worked in the 1930s. These days, there are all sorts of different ethical standards that mean that I wouldn't be able to function the same way as Skinner. 
But one of the ways we built up our collection was through that kind of work. Um, but it's kind of interesting that the reason we've got the Pentland Gudgeon of HMS Bounty in the museum's collection is because a student ran out of money in 1930s New Zealand. Before we finish the story, just for people who don't know, I might be one of them, but it would be unwise of me to say so. Pentland Gudgeon, what actually is it? Well, it's the bit that holds the rudder on. So um, the clamp and the, the bit that the rudder spins around on. So it's quite, um, that, that's a terrible description. It's the U-shaped thing and the, the little spigot that goes through. Right. It holds, um, the, holds the actual rudder to the actual the, boat. It holds the actual rudder to the actual boat. Now, it turns out um, this, there's more to the story because I did a bit of research around this. And um, Parkin Christian had the rudder on his, um, on his lawn mm. for um, a number of years and was setting off bits to passing ships. And the British Admiralty got wind of this because the Admiralty still owned HMS Bounty, believe it or not. Um, so they exchanged the rudder for a shortwave radio sometime in the 1930s. And the actual rudder is now in a museum in Fiji. Oh, wow. So, so bits of the rudder are in Fiji and the other bit of it is, uh, is in our collection. If people were wondering, uh, I've got a thing here that says uh, £100 in 1930 was worth about £7,000 today. So what did you say, £20? So, pounds? so, so £20, pounds, so divide that so, by five, yeah, so, so 1200 bucks or something. So probably £1,200. Pounds. £1,200. Pounds, yeah, yeah, so maybe three, four grand. Yeah. So there you go. Not that that really matters. No, but it's, it, but it's fascinating, and that's one of the things. And uh, oddly enough, um, in 2019, I was lucky enough to go to Pitcairn Island because yeah. um, I was going to try and see a, a, a solar eclipse. And I got to visit the Pitcairn Island Museum and meet their museum director and we're talking about the Pentland Gudgeon and they were thinking uh, of maybe asking for it to go back. Yeah, repatriate yeah. I was actually wondering that as well. Does it, should, that, should that go back? Well, in that case, I mean, certainly they could make the case and we'd, we'd be open to it. But um, Because you could also argue the idea that, you know, when, when Māori, they, they had things uh, bought for muskets and beads and even though it was paid for back in the day, you know, it's right to give it back. And even if the museum paid for it back in the day, would it be right to give it back? Oh, absolutely, it would be right to give it back. I think it's really important that we recognise the rights and the importance of the source communities. Um, does, that, does that also therefore mean eventually you could just have museums and the only thing that's in them is stuff from more than 100 kilometres of where they're standing? Well, I in mean... Th- in theory? I mean, in, in theory? I mean, they, they, I mean the, the, the big, uh, what's it, the 600-pound gorilla is um, the Olgin Marbles at the British Museum, which is, you know, these um, amazing friezes that have been um, taken from Greece and have been in the British Museum for a few, a, a number of years. And the, the Greeks want them back. And the British Museum don't want to give them back. Mm. And, you know, I think there's a very strong argument that it should be returned, to mm. be honest. But the natural extension of that argument, though, is, or the logical expe- extension, is that, yeah, potentially you can have museums that are completely empty. Yeah. Or um, they've only got things from the area. But we'll, then, we'll have the mower footprint constantly, though. Well, no, but the thing about that, even then, I would say, is that probably because it's really expensive to look after this material, people will find that actually museums are actually quite good places to store their talca and their tonga. Yeah. So you might find that. Things will be gifted back, but then they'll be gifted straight back to the exactly. museum. And, and in fact, that happens. You know, for a, a lot of the material in our Tangata Fenua Gallery, you'll see, is, is on loan from fa- from Farnau. Yeah, right. Um, because you know, obviously, it's really beautiful material that is great to be seen, but it's also kept really safely and um, you know securely as well for when they want it. I'm, I'm, one of the things that amazed me when I moved to New Zealand, because um, I ran museums in the UK as well, um, we we have some um, some cloaks that are on loan from families and, and on graduation the families come in and take the cloak and wear the cloak out to graduation and that's something that wouldn't really happen in a, a museum in the UK and I think it's really fantastic that museums in this country take that attitude um, it wouldn't happen at all so if I had a let, let's say I had a Banksy painting and I put that Banksy painting in, and I loaned it to an English museum or whatever and I wanted it back for a 
for a particular event what i couldn't get it back for a weekend it, most british museums wouldn't necessarily take loans oh. in that way but um but that being said um i think it's really healthy and it should be encouraged and, you know if yeah. i went back to the uk i'd, I'd certainly encourage museums to do it because it's really i mean and that's one of the great things about working in the museum sector in new zealand it is quite cutting edge and ahead of the uh, ahead of the world and i think this whole bicultural aspect you know the bicultural leadership that they've got at tip upper uh, is really important way of demonstrating our commitment to the principles of the treaty, um, which again is something that is you know unique to this particular country. I guess for those families that have the um, the cloaks, I would imagine that with how they get stored at the museum is probably the thing that enables them to be around for you know the eighteen or twenty one year old in twenty years from now. To be able to use, so that so there's a massive win-win there, isn't it? No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and and again, some people can look after things themselves, and that's fine. Yeah. But certainly, the museum's very happy to help out on these occasions because you know it's special for us to be able to be trusted to be care for this care for this this talca. But it's great that we we, we got the engagement with the with the far now, and, and actually every time it's worn, you know, it's warmed, and that story about that particular cloak, you know, is is enriched, uh, and and that's the thing I've learnt. And again, I come. I do what I do because I'm, you know, I say I'm not a historian, but it's 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 very apparent to me that you know, unless you know the stories of the material in your collection, the material itself is almost, um, I wouldn't say worthless, but is you know you don't know about it. So um, I mean, there's a lovely. I mean, we've got a rock. <laughs> there's a rock in them um, in our. Um, in natural science store and you might think oh, it's a rock. why is a rock interesting well it turns out that it was one of the first rocks that was in the collection um back in you know the 18 1860s and that rock has got a really storied past it was brought given to um, um the then director uh hutton um as a gift right and that really tells you something about that particular you know it's it's not just a rock anymore it's a yeah. rock with a story and yeah, that yeah. story links it to the museum it's got a narrative um, and, and the pendulum gudgeon right if you looked at the pendulum gudgeon you know you 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 would say well that's a bit of a ship but now you know it's a bit of wow hms bounty yeah you know it's been dredged off the bottom of the floor near pitkin you know the mayor was involved and there's a whole kind of tapestry a, a wonderful sto- you know rich story behind that which which i find fascinating and and the more i've worked in museums the more i've realized that the most powerful way of getting our stories or understanding our collection is to is really bring in the community and get the community to share their stories about the material because that's the stuff that makes it really interesting. Cool. Hey, and this has been so much fun. Well, it's been great. Awesome speaking to you. Yeah, well, thank you for coming in and having a chat. I mean, as I said to you, it's like we just, we just chat and you had a really – it was an interesting story and interesting things to learn about and, and – Gosh, you made the offer for the debating the flat earth. We might oh, have to take that on that. But, <laughs> might have um, to step back from that one. <laughs> the Otago Museum has a pretty good online catalogue if people want to check it out for themselves and check Absolutely. out what it's all about. Yep, if you go to the otagomuseum.nz website, um, you, um, a lot of our material is catalogued online. There's a search, search box you can go and see uh, what we contain. Um, we've got a very active Facebook uh, Facebook. Um, page and um, which is updated with all the activities. We've got a good Twitter presence and Instagram. We've got all the, all the works. Um, and I do my own thing. Um, I have my own Twitter site um, where I mostly sort of tweet pictures of my dog and uh, astronomy. So <laughs> my dog is fascinating. Well, Director of Otago Museum, uh, Ian Griffin, thank you so much for coming in today. It's been fun and I'm sure we will do this again. Great. Well, thank you very much. All right, team, that's us done for another one, uh, the Department of Conversation with Behemoth Brewing. If you are someone 
who lives in or gets to Auckland on occasion, then why don't you head to the Behemoth Brewery. Churley's Brew Pub is the home of Behemoth Brewing. Churley is the character you see uh, associated with Behemoth Brewing. C-H-U-R-L-Y-S dot co dot N-Z. It's where they make all their beer, but they've also got a pub there, a uh, restaurant there. You should go check them out and check out the home of Behemoth Brewing. It's 1A Charles Street, Mount Eden, which is behind Target Furniture on Dominion Road. And for those of you who know Auckland, that's at the city end of Dominion Road. Um, hey, well, that was fun. And uh, as I said to you in the last couple of podcasts, we have... Uh, I, I really enjoy speaking to people with information, academics and the likes. And over the next wee while, we've got a few more of them coming up. It was something we did prior to lockdown. Probably 40 to 50% of our podcasts were either academics or authors. People who you may not recognize their names immediately, but they have really informa- interesting information to hand out. Um when lockdown came around, because I do this because I keep an eye on who's coming through to the Otago University and the museum and that sort of thing, but because of COVID, of course, all travel stopped and all sort of classes stopped and um, we moved more into having conversations with profile people, people you might know the name of. But I tell you what, I'm very excited now that we are somewhat returning to normality. I mean, we're not yet, but we're getting there with COVID, that these kinds of conversations will start to be more of a feature in this podcast, um, which I enjoy immensely. Uh, so head to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DOCNZ. Uh, to keep updated as to who's coming up when. Also, you can go to uh, patbritton.com, click on the DOC tab, you'll get sort of a back catalogue of the videos all there. Um, And yeah, thanks for joining us again. If you ever want to connect, Facebook, uh, YouTube is a good place to go and connect through with us as well. My personal uh, social medias are all at patbritton. And until we see you next time, stay safe wherever you are. Hooray, my friends. 